You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. When the big man was killed, you must have wanted it. Its blood was on the leaves. If it bleeds, we can kill it. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 451 of this podcast. Today is Friday, August 12th, 2022. And today we're going to talk not just about our son and uh, his brother, our other son, our teenage sons wanting a phone and a Facebook account. We're also going to talk about what is known as persuasive technology, persuasive design. What is it? What is it used for? And what should we do with it as consumers, users of technology? How should we relate to it? But first, I want to talk about having woke up this morning at about 3 a.m. We went to bed early last night because I did not sleep the night before. According to my Fitbit, I did not sleep at all. But I got a nap in yesterday afternoon And I think that's part of why I woke up at three o'clock in the morning in addition to going to bed early. But this morning I woke up and I wanted to watch or see if I could watch this new movie, Prey. And a funny story, I found out about this movie from encountering some GIFs, which is just, you know, basically small bits of video that have been turned into kind of a looping picture. It's a type of image you can find online. It's not really a video clip per se, but it is a moving picture. And I found some GIFs that I was just really impressed by, and they looked like they were from some kind of a movie that I didn't recognize, I hadn't seen before. But the images themselves were just these beautiful aerial photography, aerial videography shots of what looked to me like the American West, where I am originally from. They looked like shots of the Rocky Mountains in particular, evergreen trees and forests and plains and plateaus and the river and Native Americans moving around on the plains, just these tiny little dots sometimes and then other times close up, hunting and talking and hiking and things like that. And then as I'm looking at these GIFs, I noticed that One particular Native American uh, woman, young woman, seems to have some kind of glowing phosphorescent uh, paint or something on her, glowing green. And so then I'm wondering, what in the world is that? And I looked it up, and that led me on a bit of a rabbit trail to finding out that there was a prequel made to the Predator movies. I think the first Predator film came out year after I was born, I was all of one years old when Arnold Schwarzenegger said, if it bleeds, we can kill it. And then proceeded to prove that maxim in the course of the rest of the film. But Prey is set in, I believe, 1791 
in the northern plains of what is now the United States of America. It was not the United States of America at the time, but it basically follows a tribe of Indians living out on the plains as they encounter a predator, one of the members of the predator species. He comes to earth, he's looking to harvest some trophies and prove that he is uh, you know, not a man, but he, you know, he's come of age, right? He, he is arrived for his species. And I was very curious. I, I guess I could just say I was very curious. I was intrigued by the multifaceted uh, idea of having a kind of historical slash sci-fi mashup. I enjoy history. I enjoy sci-fi. And I have actually rather enjoyed the Predator films, Alien versus Predator also. I've never seen any of the Aliens movies, but I did see Prometheus, which is also a kind of origin story exploring, uh, you know, part of the franchise, if you will, not just for the Predator films, but also for the Aliens movies. That's the closest I've come to seeing any of the Aliens movies. But I watched it this morning and it was very interesting. Uh, definitely, definitely <laughs> a smart move, I guess a clever move by Hulu to <clears throat> associate their green brand colors with the green blood of the predator on the face of a Native American woman. Very intersectional, uh, very uh, social justice pursuing and achieving, and also a great way, if I may say so, to put themselves as a contrast uh, option in streaming services to Netflix. Netflix, I canceled our subscription years ago because of their uh, promotion of what I think was a normalization of pedophilia in the French film Cuties. Cuties was not cute, and it sexualized in the minds and eyes of many young girls. And that was not okay. I was not okay with that. I was not good with that. I didn't want my sons to be watching that. Didn't want my daughter to be watching that. I don't want to be watching that. And for that matter, I don't want to be giving my money to a company that is trying to promote that and trying to normalize it. It seemed to me to be of a piece with revelations of Jeffrey Epstein having uh, trafficked underage girls in particular on his private island to the world's, and in particular, American and British uh, societies, wealthiest and most powerful men. It seemed to me as though revelations that lists of clients uh, might be made public or perhaps were already public and had some validity, uh, that that might lead to accountability for some of the wealthiest, most powerful, most well-connected men in American society in particular, in British society in particular, uh, it seemed to me as though was driving at least part of Netflix's choice to promote the film Cuties. If we just, you know, normalize deviance here and say that pedophilia is no big thing, no big deal, what's the problem? We're all attracted to underage girls. See, you know, don't go after this guy and that guy and this other guy for criminal prosecution. Don't look into what else he's been engaged in. No, no, no. We're all pedophiles now was kind of the, the vibe that I got from Netflix's decision right then at that particular time in the way that these things were being 
rolled out. And it's very much a continuation of the premise of the sexual revolution. It's very much a continuation of the premise undergirding the LGBTQ plus uh, agenda. If love is love, and by that we don't actually mean love, we mean sexual attraction, arousal, interest, then it really doesn't matter what your uh, interest is. Eventually, unless we get off that track, until we get off that track, they are going to uh, normalize pedophilia. They're going to say, oh, let's get rid of uh, a age, you know, under which uh, it's unacceptable for an adult to have, uh, you know, a romantic and sexual relationship with a minor or a child. Well, we got rid of Netflix and now here's Hulu, I think, positioning themselves to put a young woman at the fore of their rebranding efforts and marketing campaign. Uh, I've read one headline this morning that Prey is Hulu's most successful property venture uh, effort thus far. And again, very, very clever. Get people to come to Hulu, sign up for the free trial, see what else they've got on Hulu, and then make this uh, young Native American, beautiful young Native American woman with uh, the predator's blood on her face as a kind of war paint, make her into the new face of your streaming platform. Very, very smart. Also, interestingly, of a piece with that, I think, of a piece with the whole uh, larger narrative and companies trying to jockey for position, trying to jockey for uh, our dollars and our interest and our attention, more to the point, one of the prominently displayed features when I got into Hulu and signed up for the free trial, at least to be able to watch Prey, was a documentary about the relationship between the guy that took Victoria's Secret, the famous or infamous women's underwear and lingerie brand, to international uh, fame and popularity and wealth and all that, Uh, his having had a very close relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. And there's a three-part documentary series on Hulu that's very, very interesting to me in conjunction with the reason a lot of people have given up on Netflix and in conjunction with promotion of this film, Prey. It's also very interesting that this entry in the Predator franchise is not called Predator this, that, or the other thing. It's called Prey. There's a kind of flipping on its head of the big idea inherent to the franchise. And uh, I think that's symbolic. I think that's intentionally, strategically symbolic on their part. Uh, Whether it's all from pure motives or profit motives or a desire to, uh, you know, isolate or insulate themselves from falling prey themselves to uh, larger forces going after big corporations and uh, properties online. I don't know. I don't know. I guess time will tell, but it is interesting to note in any event. A passage I would like to read for you before we get into the main topic of this episode is John 8, 31 to 38. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. 
How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. End quote. Hard words from a good savior, from a good God and king. Hard words, necessary words for those who had believed him and then decided to jump ship, decided that they didn't want to follow him. They didn't want to believe in him. So why am I recording this episode? Right? And how does that passage relate? For starters, our two oldest sons just this week went to Denver. My wife took them for a placement test for college readiness. They're going to be taking classes this fall at Ames Community College here in Greeley, online and at the campus as a dual credit earning venture. They'll get some college classes for free as long as they make their grades, and they'll also get high school credit for the same. And as such, the question is introduced, if it wouldn't already be introduced, with our oldest son taking driver's ed right now online, and soon to have a driver's license, and soon to be able to go to class himself, drive himself to class, drive his brother and himself to class or to work, drive his younger brothers and himself to a youth group. Now, the question comes up of what do we do about getting these guys a phone? They don't have phones. Our oldest son is 15. Our next down is 14. They don't have phones. They have asked on occasion when their friends have phones, hey, can we get a phone? Now, they went to a homeschool dance here several months ago. They were invited by a certain lovely young Ari Herrera to a homeschool dance at Windsor Community Church in Windsor, Colorado. And one uh, brave young lady came up to my oldest son and gave her phone number to him. And I think before she had given it to him, she said, would you like my number? And he says, well, I don't have a phone. And she said, that's all right. Would you like it anyways? He's like, okay, sure. Uh, But that is to say, he doesn't have a phone, right? Uh, Lots of young people these days do have phones. And so the question is beginning to be asked from a number of different directions. uh, When are they going to get a phone? And my position, my answer so far has been, you don't need one, right? You don't need one. And I don't really want you to have one. I want you to focus on being with the people you're with. And uh, when you need one will be when you're going to places going to do things, going to work, going to class, etc. on your own. And you might break down, you might have issues, you might have problems, you might have a question, you might need help. Then it will make sense for you to get a phone. Also too, if you have a job, right? You have a job and you're able to make enough money to be able to pay for the cell phone bill every month, pay for a phone, then cool. Yeah, you absolutely, you can get a phone. Very useful things to have. But 
That's only if you have a use for them. And so far they haven't. But around the same time as we've been realizing they may need one, they may have a use for a phone here in just a couple of weeks when classes start. My second oldest son has also been asking if he can create a Facebook account. He wants to create a Facebook account. And his primary reason, I think, is that he wants to be able to use Facebook Marketplace. He wants to go on there, be able to find things that are used, that are for sale. He wants to also be able to potentially buy, fix up, and flip things that he might find on Facebook Marketplace. And he's wanting to do business, right? He's going to be taking a business class this fall. He's interested in starting and owning his own business. I think that's very smart. I think that's great. Uh, But also, too, at the same time, I am reticent. I am reluctant uh, with regards to social media in general and Facebook in particular. My wife and I are back on Facebook, again, in a similar fashion to why we're thinking about giving uh, at least one phone to our sons, our oldest two, uh, because we need to be able to keep in touch with the world. We live in the world. We are not of the world, but we live in the world. And we are not going to be a slave to Facebook, which is the big reason why I'm not so sure I want our sons to have Facebook just yet or ever. Uh, But neither are we going to be slaves to not having Facebook. You know, I am very concerned about the very subtle manipulation of our feelings, our sentiments, our opinions, our ability to communicate with one another, our perception that we are communicating with one another, even if other people are not seeing what it is that we are sharing and saying and you know what it is that we're trying to communicate. I'm very, very concerned that a lot of manipulation has gone into the way that these platforms were designed and the way that they operate and what their goals are. I don't think their goals are primarily in alignment with our interests, who we want to be, who we believe God has called us and made us to be, and what we should be about. And so it was very interesting yesterday when a guy that I work with, Chad Myers, sent me an article. He's been listening to this podcast and he thought, oh, okay, based on some of the episodes I've been listening to here lately, I think you might be really interested in reading this. And so he sends me a link to a piece by Richard Freed from March 12th, 2018, published at Medium. And the article is titled, The Tech Industry's War on Kids. Now, that's a very attention-getting title. And I would say the tech industry is not really at war with kids, but I would say that the tech industry has been very much about trying to enslave kids after a fashion, enslaving their minds getting them harnessed and harvested for their data and then marketing things to them accordingly, marketing not just products and services, but ideas and feelings and preying on some very, very subtle psychological factors in us that psychologists have known about for some time. Now, there's no new thing under the sun, just to be very clear. Let me just say that from the outset. However smart, sophisticated, self-confident these folks are, what they are doing is nothing new. It's just like, you know, two episodes ago, I recorded a book review of Nudge by Cass 
R. Sunstein and Richard H. Thaler. Nudge might be what they're calling it these days, but it's nothing new. It's manipulation. It's deceit. It's deception. It's lying, right? It's no new thing. Now, the way that they're going about it in our particular context at this point in time and space may be unique, but generally speaking, people are people. They're people. We're people. The big idea here is not to try and live in a world that does not exist and will not exist until Christ returns or calls us home. We live in the world. But for one thing, we don't want to be of the world. We don't want to be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. So we have to take note of what God says about the world that we live in, who he is, who we are, what he's called us to, what we're supposed to be about. But for two, beyond just that, we want to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. If I can explain my reasons for having told my sons to this point, no, you don't need a phone. And also, let me get back with you about a Facebook account. If I can explain those reasons in this episode, I think for one, that will help my sons and my daughter to understand better what it is that we're trying to do, why we're making the decisions that we're making about screen time and about devices and about media and about phones and social media in particular. And I think also too, if I think out loud on these things, if I share them with you, it will be a value to you as well. So The Tech Industry's War on Kids by Richard Freed. I've got a lot that I want to quote from this piece. And you should go read the article in it in its entirety. I'm not going to read the whole thing for you. I will be quoting it uh, quite a lot in this episode. You should go read the full thing. Also, it looks as though Mr. Freed has also written a book, published a book called Wired Child, Reclaiming Childhood in a Digital Age. He is billed in his bio as a child and adolescent psychologist. He's got 1,600 followers on Medium. But he says early on in one of the first sections in this article, our children's and teens' destructive obsession with technology is the predictable consequence of a virtually unrecognized merger between the tech industry and psychology. He says this as a psychologist, and he tells a story about someone who was brought to him for counseling, a young lady whose parents tried to take away her phone, and she threw a violent tantrum And then she wanted to kill herself because she was so addicted to her phone based on the kind of dopamine hits that she was getting from constant use of her phone. She was afraid of missing out and her life being ruined because her parents were concerned that her addiction to her phone was interfering with life. She was not paying attention to school. She wasn't cleaning her room. She wasn't conversing with them. She wasn't in the real world. She'd been sucked into her phone and she was stuck there and she was trapped there. Her parents were trying to get her out and break her free and she reacted very violently. And according to Richard Freed, this is something he sees a lot of. He sees a lot of this. He goes on to say, this alliance between the tech industry and psychology pairs the consumer tech industry's immense wealth with the most sophisticated psychological research making it possible to develop social media, video games, 
and phones with drug-like power to seduce young users. He also says in his uh, early intro to the topic that psychology, and I quote, a discipline that we associate with healing is now being used as a weapon against children. Now, I don't know if I would use the word weapon here. I wouldn't necessarily say weapon, but it's definitely being used as a tool. And I think a lot of the folks who are using psychology in this way with technology in the way that hardware and software both are designed and marketed, uh, they think that they are just using a tool. And insofar as, you know, going down through the article, there's a lot of questions of ethics involved here. Uh, Insofar as ethics really depends on you understanding the difference between right and wrong and having an objective standard that accords with reality with regards to right and wrong, this really uncovers and gets back to a recurring problem in modern society and postmodern society. As we have become increasingly secular, we have less and less an idea of what is good and what is evil and what is right and what is wrong. We have less and less an idea of what is true and what is false, and the results are disastrous. Nudge, the book that I reviewed two episodes ago, is presented as a moral good. If we can combat climate change, if we can promote gay marriage, if we can get people to sign up to be organ donors, if we can combat the gun lobby and promote gun control, if we can have you know, effective COVID policy that gets people to do what they're told when we shut down the economy and lock down their churches and their places of business, their small businesses at least, well, then we are doing a good thing. This goes back to Google's original motto, don't be evil. Well, that's a great motto, but do you even know what evil is apart from God? Or in your godlessness, are you just kind of making it up? And are you even potentially deceiving yourself? The smarter a person is, the harder it can be for them to realize that they have lied to themselves about what it is that they're actually doing. What is the chief end of man, for instance? Particularly if you regard 99% of humanity as human beings, irrational actors who don't make the right decisions according to what I think is the right decision. Only the top 1% like me. So, you know, the person talking about this stuff never counts themselves in the 99% in my experience. They always consider themselves to be part of that 1%. And so they're going to take it on themselves to utilize and leverage every trick they can think of for saving the dum-dums like you and I from ourselves. But an interesting thing that needs to be researched further, needs to be pursued further, a thread to pull on is where Freed talks in his article about the Stanford Persuasive Technology Lab in Palo Alto, California, founded in 1998 by a Dr. B.J. Fogg. There's an irony for you. What a name. Brain Fogg, perhaps. I wonder what B.J. stands for. Brain Junk Fogg, maybe? I don't know. B.J. Fogg, Dr. B.J. Fogg, is a psychologist and the father of 
persuasive technology, as it's called. That is a discipline in which smartphones, social media, video games are all designed and configured and marketed and rolled out and improved and optimized so as to alter human thoughts and behaviors. Now, I can read that definition as given by Richard Fried, and you can say, ooh, that's really creepy stuff. But depending on how these things are considered, you can also say that a book is for the same thing, right? Books are configured to alter human thoughts and behaviors, ideally, right? There should be a call to action. We should be trying to persuade you, inform you, help you to feel as you ought to feel, think as you ought to think, know what you ought to know, understand what you ought to understand, and more to the point, do what you ought to do. And this is why I think book burning is not always a bad thing, actually, because some books either A, intentionally are trying to wreak a lot of havoc as a kind of revolution against God. Some other books are just garbage. They were poorly written on a faulty premise, and they're doing a lot of harm and a lot of damage. So also, technology in general is capable of all the same things that books are, of all the same things that basic human speech is capable of. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks is a principle which applies equally to algorithms that are baked into computer code and software and website design as to what you actually are verbally saying in the most rudimentary of ways. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What is in your heart that you're writing this code? That's the question that should be asked. Interestingly enough, the lab's website proclaims, advertises, machines designed to change humans. So then the question ought to be, okay, how do you think humans need to change? That's where the rubber meets the road. The idea that you want to change humans is not necessarily bad, but how do you want to change humans and why? And should we want that along with you? Should we be on board with the ways in which you want to change us? These are questions that we ought to be asking, and the fact that a lot of this is unknown and it's behind the scenes, that is concerning because essentially what's being taken away from us, if these things are rolled out like they're just accidentally popular or successful or the thing that is available to us, if they're rolled out like that and we think that we're choosing but we're not making an informed choice, we don't realize what the larger agenda is, then we're being manipulated, we're being deceived, we're being lied to. Even if it's supposedly for our own good or the greater good, there's something very unethical about that, I do believe. I don't believe that that is a godly, righteous, and honorable way to go about trying to reform humanity. In fact, I think insofar as it's an inherently godless endeavor on the part of these big tech giants and these academics— I think what we will get at the end of the road is a very satanic hellscape if we don't do something about it. But Fogg is quoted quite often and uh, with good reason. If he is the father of persuasive technology, if he is the guy who started this persuasive technology lab at Stanford, it's right to quote him at length 
For one thing, he says, we can now create machines that can change what people think and what people do, and the machines can do that autonomously. Now, this is where it gets really disingenuous. When you hear about conservatives being systematically censored and deplatformed online, I still can't get into my Twitter account, but I still get prompts and emails from Twitter saying, here's what you've missed, right? Fear of missing out. They're trying to capitalize on that. There's something cruel about it. If they happen to know, which they should, their algorithms should know that I still don't have access to my Twitter account, my 24-hour or 12-hour, actually, I think as the case may be, suspension is now going on several months, and it will go on indefinitely until they lift the suspension because I'm not going to cancel my appeal. I made an appeal. I asked for them to explain how it is my post violated their community standards, so-called. They denied my first appeal immediately within five minutes, and I submitted another one immediately. And It's just been hanging out. But when Twitter executives and spokespeople are questioned on this, whether by lawmakers or by journalists or by podcast hosts like Tim Pool and Joe Rogan, when they're questioned point blank, why are you systematically censoring conservatives and you don't correspondingly censor progressives and liberals and leftists, the fallback line is it's the algorithm. It's the code. The system did it. Yes, but who wrote the code? You can't hide behind the system having been designed to do that (laughs) unless you're willing to admit that you designed the system to do that. And even here, you have Fogg saying that they are able to create machines that can change what people think and what people do, and the machines can do it autonomously. That's why you program them accordingly so that it just automatically happens. It's a very low energy, set it and forget it approach to overhauling humanity. Fogg's personal website is also quoted in this article. Uh, It has been since removed, this claim or boast, but he says, my students often do groundbreaking projects and they continue having impact in the real world after they leave Stanford. For example, Instagram has influenced the behavior of over 800 million people. The co-founder was a student of mine. Now realize what is being said here, right? Realize what is being said here. You go to Instagram and what do you pay per month? What, what's your subscription fee? Nothing, right? Except time. If you have an Instagram account, you pay nothing. There is no fee. Why is that? Because you are the product. (laughs) Your changed behavior, more to the point, is the product. The co-founder of Instagram was a student of Fogg's. And again, according to Richard Freed, the boast here was removed sometime after January 2018. He saw it there in January of 2018. The updated website at time of publication for Freed's article said instead, I teach good people how behavior works so they can create products and services that benefit everyday people around the world. So what is this, right? Well, this is a nudge for one to nudge opposite accountability that would have come from just leaving up 
the previous post that was not worded carefully enough. This is a carefully crafted reframing of what it is that he's doing. I teach good people. I teach good people how behavior works. They're not good people, though. They're people with a sinful nature. They're not good people. I'm not good people. You're not good people. Yet again, it goes back to the whole trouble with Google's initial motto. Don't be evil. Uh, do you know what evil is? No. But it sounds it sounds nice, doesn't it? <laughs> to say don't be evil. It sounds good. I teach good people how behavior works. Oh, what is a good person? Well, I don't know. It just sounds nice. Please don't investigate me. Please don't. <laughs> Please don't expose me. And to what end, right? How does behavior work? So they can create products and services that benefit everyday people around the world. Well, benefit is pretty subjective. If we already have failed the sniff test on knowing what good is and what is evil, then are we feeling lucky on what is a benefit to people around the world? And which people, right? Which people? The people who are actually having their behavior manipulated through Instagram's way of presenting information, managing their information, marketing their information to others who will use it to market other things to those people really now. Stanford Persuasive Technology Lab's website, meanwhile, makes this claim, and I quote, persuasive technologies can bring about positive changes in many domains, including health, business, safety, and education. We also believe that new advances in technology can help promote world peace in 30 years. Now, this goes back to a little book I have on my shelf, which I'll tell you about if you're interested in knowing more about the plan to make war illegal. The Internationalists, How a Radical Plan to Outlaw War Remade the World by Una A. Hathaway and Scott J. Shapiro is a book you should pick up and read to understand the United Nations, how it operates, what its premise is, where it came from, and also ecumenism in the modern day, the World Council of Churches, other bodies that emanate out from the World Council of Churches. You will understand better why it is George W. Bush was accused of being a war criminal for going into Iraq in Afghanistan, if you understand that the crime he is accused of having committed is a war crime because of a special treaty that was written up and signed to declare against international law the making of aggressive war. That's the big idea. The League of Nations was started to provide a kind of moderating, peacekeeping oversight uh, super government over top of national governments around the world. The League of Nations eventually gave way to the United Nations. But one of the things talked about in this book, The Internationalists, is the problem of human nature and thousands of years of human history being dominated by men having a high value on personal honor, on their family's honor, on the honor of their religion, on the honor of their nation. Essentially, the intellectuals and thought leaders and politicians and academics 
who got on board early on and are they are, they are the internationalists. When you, when you hear people talk about globalism and globalists, here's a book explaining where globalism and globalists and the global elite, where that all comes from, from the perspective of two authors who think it's a really great thing. And we should actually be really excited about that. And we should actually be really on board and supportive of it. But the intellectuals who kicked this idea around of achieving world peace realized very quickly that in order to stop countries and their complicated webs of alliances from going to war with each other, like in World War I and World War II, you would have to overhaul human psychology, the way that we think of ourselves as parts of groups whose honor is very important and who we would lay down our lives to protect and defend. A lot of what we have seen over the past century of American history in particular is an outgrowth of those efforts at world peace. A lot of what we're seeing with social media being designed the way that it is, being rolled out, being governed the way that it is, really is about trying to achieve world peace. A lot of the climate change initiatives really at the root are about trying to achieve world peace, not between humanity and the planet, but between human beings and one another by getting rid of the distinctions between people. Let's get rid of the distinction between rich and poor. And in the meantime, while we still can't, we will create two classes of people and we will pit them against each other. And anytime we want to destroy a rich person, we will emphasize their wealth to those who are poor, and we will try and exacerbate biases against the rich, which are always easy to find when there's envy and jealousy and a covetousness towards the wealth of the wealthy. When we want to destroy poor people, we will play on stereotypes about them being poor. And if they vote the way we don't want them to vote, or if they manage their families and their churches and their businesses and their schools and their communities in ways that we don't want them to, we will play up the fact that they're poor and try and associate their poverty with a lack of education, a lack of sophistication, a lack of culture in a way that destroys their influence or at least keeps them as isolated as possible from infecting the rest of the world. Control the flow of information, control access to information, control people's feelings about the information, and you control the world. We live in an information age. Wars are now fought using control of the information, control of the narrative, more to the point. You control the narrative and you will control the people who would act differently than you want them to if they had different information, if they had more of the story. That, <clears throat> that is what the Stanford Persuasive Technology Lab website is talking about when it says their new advances in tech can help promote world peace in 30 years. Now, moving on through the Richard Fried piece, he says that persuasive technology, also called persuasive design, works by deliberately creating digital environments that users feel fulfill their basic human drives to be social or obtain goals better than real world alternatives. This is to say, you may not be actually 
achieving your basic human drives better than real world alternatives by using these intercessors. You may not be, but you will feel as though you are. There's another quote from Fogg. Video games, better than anything else in our culture, deliver rewards to people, especially teenage boys. He continues, teenage boys are wired to seek competency, to master our world and get better at stuff. Video games, in dishing out rewards, can convey to people that their competency is growing. You can get better at something second by second. End quote. This is why a lot of young men and a lot of boys are addicted to video games, because they feel as though they're getting more and more competent. They're being rewarded. They're getting skilled. They are achieving status. And especially as their peers are playing the same games and there are leaderboards and achievements to unlock and bragging rights and multiplayer ventures to engage in, this is absolutely a part of being a young man in this day and age for the vast majority of young men in the developed world. Now he goes on, so that's young boys. Young boys want to seek competency and actually as an aside, but not much aside, that's because young boys have an, a God-given innate hardwired in programmed from the almighty Purpose. Their purpose when they're boys is to grow up to be men. And when they become men, without a whole lot of funny business from psychologists who want us to have fewer children and give them over to the state to be programmed by the state, apart from funny business from climate activists who want us to stop producing and consuming and just let everything go back to a state of nature because that's the purest, best, most good outcome they can think of, young boys will want to grow up into men who have wives, who have children, who have gainful employment, who are respected in their community, who are leaders in their community, who are competent, who are skilled, who are strong, who are well-spoken, who have understanding, who have beautiful homes, handsome homes, who have good transportation, they're mobile, they have good tools, they wear nice clothes. That's what young boys, teenage boys, want to grow up into without a whole lot of funny business from manipulative folks trying to nudge them into a brave new world. But girls, on the other hand, social media companies are preying on, (laughs) speaking of prey, and Hulu's new venture. Social media companies use persuasive design to prey on the age-appropriate desire for preteen and teen kids, especially girls, to be socially successful. Now, I would go a little beyond this. How? Right? How? Freed doesn't talk so much about what competency is a means to the end of. So also, he doesn't really talk about what being socially successful is a means to the end of. I would argue that young girls, teen girls, preteen girls want to be socially successful because it's hardwired into them. 
to want family and to keep home and to build community. They want to have children. They want to have a husband. They want to be loved by their husband. They want to nurture their children. They want to be surrounded by a community that will support their husband and respect their husband and which will welcome their children and love their children. Part of how preteen and teen kids age appropriately might desire to be socially successful towards those ends of, you know, without some funny business from psychologists, getting married, having children, is they want to be thought of as healthy, beautiful, charming, intelligent, funny, clever, resourceful. They want to be thought of as being good cooks or good looking or well-connected, or savvy, etc. This is why we need to be careful trying to abolish the idea of young ladies making comparisons between how they look and how other girls look. You don't want to abolish that entirely because if you abolish it too thoroughly, you will have removed something that is supposed to be, I think, in young women. And so also for young men. If you abolish entirely a comparison that young men make between themselves and their peers. How strong are they? How fast are they? How good of a shot are they? How good of a businessman are they? If you try and remove too much of them comparing themselves to their peers, you will remove their drive to become providers and protectors for a wife and children someday. You will remove their ability to be men, essentially. You remove too much of young women comparing themselves to other young women. Who's the prettiest? Who's the best cook? Who's the best looking? Who's the best dressed? Who has the nicest digs? Who has the best fashion sense? Etc. Etc. You will, if you're not careful, remove their desire to be young women. So be careful is all I'm saying. But the idea that video games are preying on our young men and trying to make money off of them, even to the detriment of our young men who are wired to seek competency and they're getting very competent at the game because the game is programmed to reward them. It's not that they don't want to be competent. It's that the game is designed to prey on their desire to achieve competence and social acceptance and respect, more to the point. They want to be Strong, capable, competent, respected. Games for young men are targeted at those motivators and convincing them that the quickest, surest way to get the most of that is through this game. Social media is targeting young girls and young women and convincing them that the quickest way for them to prove themselves to be beautiful, resourceful, clever, desirable, for a young man, in some sense, is to post incessantly and to give incessant attention to their social media image. <clears throat> Fortune magazine, according to Freed, calls BJ Fogg a new guru you should know. His research is behind user experience or UX designers. They utilize his models of persuasive design And to some extent, this goes back to some of the things that I said in the book review for Nudge about the difference between paying attention to ergonomics 
and ease of use versus manipulating people, right? User experience designers, not necessarily a bad bunch. You want to come up with a very usable product that's easy to use, that does consistently, reliably, and well what it is that you purchased it for or you're using it for, what you need it to do. But BJ Fogg may be persuading a lot of user experience designers to think that the definition of beneficial and good is a piece with this larger agenda of overhauling humanity, reforming humanity. Are the products being designed for us or in some measure, are we being designed through the products and the services and the marketing? It's an important question to ask. Is this thing being programmed or am I being programmed? (laughs) As Forbes magazine writer Anthony Wing Cosner notes, according to Freed, no one has perhaps been as influential in the current generation of user experience designers as Stanford researcher B.J. Fogg. Now, it's interesting also, Fogg, as quoted in Cosner's Forbes article, says that our big tech social media giants have been using computers to influence our behavior. As in, it's not coincidental, it's not accidental, it's not a waste product, it's not a bug that our behavior is being influenced, it's a feature. That is actually why these things are free, because they're not free. Because the cost is you being manipulated, you being nudged in an endless variety of ways to do an endless variety of things differently than you would have otherwise. And in a sense, you're being hacked, you're being hijacked. The driving force behind behavior change is psychology. And this is where I agree with a lot of my cousin Tim Mullet's concerns. He's a nuthetic counselor. My last episode was uh, you know, critical of some of his conclusions. I don't believe, for instance, I don't agree with him, for instance, that we should be rebuking people for their emotions. I think if you rebuke people for their emotions too much, they're going to try and just not be emotional beings. And the focus should not be on rebuking their emotions. The focus should be on what do we believe is true? What do we believe is good according to God's word? That's the big idea. Get that right. And for one, you will protect yourself against unscrupulous designers and programmers who are trying to program you. Also, too, you will be able to get a control over your emotions that you don't currently have, but you need the truth and you need to know the truth about what's good according to God. Also, according to BJ Fogg, the Fogg behavioral model is a well-tested method to change behavior and it involves three primary factors. One, being motivation. Two, being ability. Three, being triggers. Fogg writes in an academic paper of his that a key motivator is our desire for social acceptance. But interestingly enough, he says an even more powerful motivator is our desire to not be rejected socially. Now, what is it, riddle me this, what is it that drives us to go back again and again to social media if we are addicted to Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, what have you, fill in the blank, anyone you prefer, what is driving us back again and again? A fear of missing out, a fear of being rejected, of being outside of society, 
of having no friends, of our family forgetting about us. It's a fear of being socially rejected. Now, try this on for size. A social media company founded on the premise that achieving world peace by totally overhauling the human psyche, the human soul, heart and mind, comes up with community standards, which they're going to have uh, an army of bots and fact checkers and moderators to make sure you're abiding by. And those community standards decide essentially whether you are being accepted socially or rejected socially based on what news stories you're sharing, what comments you're adding, how you're engaging with people, what it is that you're trying to say, what it is that you're trying to post, your ability to be accepted and not rejected is contingent on abiding by these community standards. Now, this is where a lot of libertarians get very short-sighted because they think, oh, these are private companies. They shouldn't be regulated. You know, you don't like it, just do something else. Don't be on there. And what they miss is this is an attempt to hack and overhaul and essentially co-opt humanity, the whole world. It is not that these are private companies. It is that these are the tools of your would-be overlords, period. Full stop, that's what it is. And you need to think of it as such. And that doesn't mean you don't engage with it on some level, but by golly, you'd better not engage with it carelessly, flippantly, without a keen awareness of what is true and what is good according to God. Regarding ability, Fogg writes in that same academic paper that digital products should be made so that users don't have to think hard. And what is it that we find as an excuse in Thaler and Sunstein's work? 99% of humanity, not econs like them, but just regular old human beings making irrational choices. And yet, this is what I'm trying to say when I say, let's not be quite so hard on the majority of folk who are anxious, depressed, having a hard time paying attention. We have been conditioned to not be able to think hard. We have been conditioned to have all the hard thinking already done for us by people whose values are at war with our values, whose God is the person they see in the mirror. We are being conditioned to not think hard, to not be able. Where ability is measured by how easy it is for us to do a thing and how rewarding it is for us to do that thing compared with how easy it is for us to do it. This is what drives all development of technology. It is. If it's easy for me to get from here to church across town, even though it might be, what, five, 10 miles, I can be there in 15 minutes, even with traffic, even with stoplights, because I've got a motor vehicle. There's nothing wrong with that per se. But insofar as these social media sites web browsers, search engines, online resources, apps, games, streaming platforms even, are being designed for ease of use. The easier they are, the more subliminal the hidden messages are likely to be. The less likely we are to catch the fact that we're being nudged in an endless variety of ways. Lastly, How Fog Models 
behavior and how we can change behavior through the use of technology designed along his persuasive technology model formula. Triggers. Potential users need to be triggered. And how do you do that? Well, you trigger them by word of mouth. You trigger them by notifications. You trigger them through advertising. But the more natural and less affected, less put on the trigger is, the more effective it will be, especially as our defenses are increasingly up for things that are overtly telling us to do something that we don't want to be told to do. You know, the fact that I encountered, for instance, to give you an example, the fact that I encountered a trigger to find and watch Prey on Hulu because I was browsing a social media site and came across some GIFs of the movie is exactly the kind of thing that Fogg is talking about. Let's put triggers in your social media feed, in your Facebook feed. Let's put little commercials and advertising based on what your friends and family are saying on here and when and whether we show it to you when you're actually scrolling the feed. And next to what? Let's create positive association and negative association between things by putting them right next to each other so that we can change your feelings about these things. We can change your impression about these things. Fogg's formula is the basis for multi-billion dollar transnational global social media and video game companies. Persuasive technologies, freed rights, work because of their apparent triggering of the release of dopamine. There's actually a company he talks about in quotes here called Dopamine Labs that brags, connect your app to our persuasive AI and lift your engagement and revenue up to 30% by giving your users our perfect bursts of dopamine. They also say a burst of dopamine doesn't just feel good. It's proven to rewire user behavior and habits. The founder of Dopamine Labs did an interview for KQED Science. Ramsey Brown says, We have now developed a rigorous technology of the human mind, and that is both exciting and terrifying. We have the ability to twiddle some knobs in a machine learning dashboard we build, and around the world, hundreds of thousands of people are going to quietly change their behavior in ways that unbeknownst to them feel second nature, but are really by design, end quote. Freed also talks here in this full article, which you should definitely read all of, about persuasion profiles, our unique vulnerabilities are profiled. And this is why Facebook is free. This is why Instagram is free. This is why Pinterest is free. This is why Twitter is free. Because you're not, and you're the actual product. Your profile, your persuasion profile, is the actual product. That's what's up for sale. So access to the website doesn't need to be for sale. Not to you. Access to the data about you, though, that's very valuable. Bill David Dow, in an article he wrote for The Atlantic, is quoted here, exploiting the neuroscience of internet 
Addiction was the name of the article. The leaders of internet companies face an interesting, if also morally questionable, imperative. Either they hijack neuroscience to gain market share and make large profits, or they let competitors do that and run away with the market. So then, if they don't do it, somebody else will. So it might as well be us, right? If they don't do it, somebody else will. And then all the justifications follow. Oh, we're, we're doing it for good, right? We're not going to be evil. But do we know what good is? Do we know what evil is? I'm not convinced that these people know good from evil. And yet, this is where, again, I want to emphasize, I am not saying that we shouldn't use these things at all. I don't know how you can function in modern society and not use these things. I also, to be very clear, am certainly not anti-technology. I am anti-being a slave. I do not want to be enslaved. I don't want my wife to be enslaved. I don't want my children to be enslaved. I am pro-freedom. And going again back to John 8, 31 to 38, God is pro-freedom. Christ, our Savior, is pro-freedom. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. We want to be set free and to be free indeed. A couple of Bible verses to think about here with regards to our use of technology or really anything. Also, our way of relating to marketing and public relations, social media posts, not necessarily free of propaganda just because this one here was written by your auntie. This one here came from your childhood best friend. Why was that one showing up in your feed right now? Next to this and this and this other thing. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Don't let yourself be manipulated in your feelings at, a, at an emotional level. You know, Chad Myers made a really great point. He complimented me on yesterday's podcast episode. And of course I like that, you know, but that wasn't the really great point. The really great point was, he says, I, I would say we should correct people for being controlled by their emotions. Allowing yourself to be controlled by your emotions. That's different than feeling the feelings that you're feeling. I don't think, and I, I agree with that. I agree with that totally. We should not be rebuking people for having an emotional reaction to something that's going on. If they don't know what they don't know, and you can tell them the truth and the truth sets them free, then do that, right? If they don't know what is good and you can tell them what is good, then do that. If they are feeling a feeling and then however they feel, that's exactly what they're going to do and they're controlled by their emotions and they're committed to following their heart, which is everything that's wrong with Disney, telling us to follow our hearts, not a great idea. Yeah, It's fine for you to want things. That's different. It's fine for you to feel feelings. That's different. To uncritically follow your feelings and whatever it is that your heart wants, the heart wants what the heart wants, that is, for one, a surefire way to be manipulated by other people who will just figure out which emotions you always obey, and they will get you to feel those emotions and then get you to do what they want you to do when 
They want you to do the thing. Also, too, though, that's a surefire way to be a slave to sin. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Also, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Note also, too, a overriding and out-of-proportion desire for world peace is is it is what is driving a lot of this. It's not all just profit motive and yada yada. An out-of-proportion desire for world peace is the bait, even for the very, very smart people who don't think they themselves are manipulated, which is another risk of uh, being wise in your own eyes. You don't even double check. You don't check your mirrors. <laughs> You're just absolutely confident that nobody's going to pass you. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. What social media is designed to do is to conform you to the pattern of this world. Don't. Don't do it. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. To what end? Discerning the will of God. We make very poor gods. And it doesn't matter how wealthy the founders and CEOs and investors of Facebook CEO, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, founder and CEO, Mark Zuckerberg is very, very wealthy. It doesn't matter how wealthy he is. It doesn't matter how wealthy his equivalent and the investors as well at Google or Twitter are. It does not matter. They make very poor gods. You want to know what the will of Yahweh God is. What is good and acceptable and perfect? That's what you want to discern. Lastly, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6, the Apostle Paul writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Now, this does not mean, obviously, since you're listening to this podcast on a smart device, I presume, or your computer, I presume, it does not mean that we become Luddites. It doesn't mean that we become Mennonites. My dad was raised Mennonite. My grandpa and grandma Mullet were raised Mennonite. You don't have to become a Mennonite to be protected from this. Also, too, it would be silly to assume that just because these things are being designed in a godless way, being used to a bad end, a godless end, therefore, we cannot use these things at all. I would say this is meat offered to idols. If you cannot, in good conscience, utilize a smartphone or social media account or have access to a streaming platform that has some objectionable content, it's manipulating you and other people towards a bad end, don't do it. Meat offered to idols. If, however, you can receive with thanksgiving and use to God's glory even something that has been sold to you in an idol's temple and your conscience is okay with that and you yourself are not participating in the idolatry, that is not contrary to this here in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6. We're not waging war according to the flesh, but if we are going to wage war, The weapons of our warfare have divine power to destroy strongholds. Ladies and gentlemen, 
the way this technology is being used with persuasive design to try and accomplish world peace on these terms is a stronghold of strongholds. It's a stronghold if there ever was one. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is why Christians are routinely, throughout the past 2,000 years, targets of persecution by totalitarian regimes and governments. This isn't a command. This is just a statement of fact. This is what we do. (laughs) This is how we roll. This is what we do. If it bleeds, we can kill it. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. That's what we are fighting. And if you can utilize these technologies and platforms, according to God's word, being transformed by the renewing of your mind, guided by the Holy Spirit for God's glory, because you love your neighbor as you love yourself, then God bless you. And I say, praise God and pass the ammunition, spiritually speaking, of course. So also, too, I think, you know, getting back to the whole premise of my start to this conversation, my son asks me, hey, dad, can I have a phone? If I can't in good conscience say yes, then I ought not to. And feeling guilty because, oh, so-and-so's parents gave them a phone, just will not do. There are good, sound reasons to say, no, not yet. Someday, when these are the conditions, because I can teach and train And lead my sons well when I say no for the right reasons and then give those reasons. So also with social media. If I can't in good conscience say yes, then the answer is no. That's parenting. The article by Mr. Freed, I've been quoting to you so much, Richard Freed's article ends with a lot of calls to action for psychologists to follow. He thinks the APA, American Psychological Association, needs to step up because parents not just don't understand, but also it seems like he's arguing parents can't even really understand. I reject that. I think there's a paternalistic assumption being made there that is self-serving, even as he is admittedly concerned about what psychology is used for with the development of these texts. There's a self-serving, self-aggrandizing attitude that is just just silly. It's just dumb, and it's really not helpful. If the APA does something to counter these trends, great, cool. Don't wait for them. And we don't have to. That's the great thing. I have a Bible. You have a Bible, I presume, I hope. If you don't, you should get one. You need one. If you've got a smartphone, you could download the app, and you should start reading You should start listening to it. If you lack wisdom, ask God. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. We don't need to wait for the APA to get around to it. We don't have to wait for big tech to get around to it. We don't have to wait for the market to reward and punish companies for being bad actors or good actors. We don't have to wait for politicians to regulate moms and dads. It's up to us. We can be the heroes of this story turn our hearts to our children, or we can be complicit. And I think we do need, you know, along these lines, we do need to teach our children to code. I'm very excited about my sons, not just learning Latin and Spanish this school year, 
but learning to code. Because again, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That goes for if you're speaking English, if you're speaking Spanish, if you're speaking Latin. That goes for if you're reading and writing C++ or HTML. I think part of the response here from Christian conservative parents, homeschooling parents especially, should be teach your kids to code so they can write good code that is God-honoring, that's in accordance with the truth, that takes every thought captive to obey Christ, that destroys arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. I want my sons not to avoid technology. I want them to know how to read a book, how to watch a movie, how to listen to a piece of music, how to look at a piece of art, how to perceive what is really being sold to them and how in an advertisement or commercial. And I want them to be able to utilize technology for God's glory and out of a genuine, sincere love for their neighbor. That is the kind of competence we should be pursuing. Not endless hours of video game achievements on Steam or Xbox Live. A little bit of video gaming, I think, is cultural literacy. Absolutely. But all things being permissible, not all things are beneficial. We have to be wise. We have to guard our hearts. We have to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And we've got to wage war holy, righteous war against the things that are attacking our hearts and our minds and taking us captive. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I gotta run. That's all I've got, as always. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.